are back for episode 17 of the Bomber Brothers podcast. Sean and Ryan with you on the first official episode where there is no current baseball being played. We are officially in the offseason after they unfortunately canceled the World Series before it was played, so there's no World Series champion this year. Sean, thanks for uh, coming back, and even though I don't know where else you'd be going right now, but... It's the winter, so hopefully you don't sign with another podcast as a free agent. I, I wasn't aware I had that those sort of sort of rights in my contract. Well, we have already we already have some news to talk about in in Yankee Land. We have Brett Gardner coming back, but um, you know, before we get into that, something to look forward to. We talked to Jane Levy, the author of the new Babe Ruth biography, Big Fella, and we'll play that interview later. Some awesome material on the Babe, stuff that a lot of people considered to be fact that um, her research kind of debunked and paints a different picture of the Babe, and it's an awesome book. I'm about 350 pages in, and um, and I love it, and, and it was a great interview. Quick, quick aside, how far are you from the end? Uh, it's 477 pages. I actually checked that tonight when I stopped reading. So I'm like 125 pages away. You think you'll finish it by Saturday? Uh, my plan was to bring it with me so I can give it to you this weekend. And for our listeners, this weekend, Sean is actually getting married. Yeah, I, I wanted a book for the for the honeymoon. So, yeah. That, like, that. You guys are going to get into a fight and you're going to have to go read on your own? No, she'll be asleep on the plane before we take off, though, and I can't sleep on the plane because I'm, you know, the size of a giraffe, and I can't, like, sleep without waking up with a terrible neck pain, so I need something to do. That's fair. Yeah, I will bring it with me, and anyone out there who wants a copy of their own, I highly recommend you get it. It's it's a great book, and we'll play that interview in a little bit, but before we hop into the past, let's talk about the present as... The Yankees declined the option on Brett Gardner, but just assigned him to a little less money, um, seven and a half million for next year, and I think he also makes an extra two million, which brings it up to nine and a half. But still, it's a little bit of a pay cut, and I personally, I think it's perfect for both sides. You bring back a veteran bat in Gardner who still has some speed in his legs and. Let's face it, the Yankees, as of as their roster holds right now, isn't going to be heading into the season in 2019 with the same outfield depth they had heading into this season because it's it's Gardner, it's Hicks, Stanton, and Judge. Frazier is still a question mark. Ellsbury will always be a question mark until he's, <laughs> until he's finally gone. And Billy McKinney is no longer a factor. And who knows if the Yankees have plans to bring back Andrew McCutcheon so I think it's a good move by the Yankees. Cut his salary a little bit because he is on the decline. But you bring back the longest tenured Yankee for one more year. Yeah, he um, Gardner as a fourth outfielder next year would be great. He could play center field and back up picks. And I think that's the thing for him is if he limit the, if they limit his playing time, he plays in spurts. Um, I think he'll stay healthier and he won't wear down and he'll be productive as he transitions to this second stage of his career or this last leg of his career. And I also think having his leadership around is really important. Um, I, I mean, he was vocal after the, the game one loss in the division series, which I, I thought, you know, it was it was nice that he showed that sort of urgency. And he's just he's always been a leader on the team, but at the same time seems to be a good uh, good mentor to the young guys. So 
from a baseball standpoint, I think it makes sense. It's always nice to have another lefty bat and um, and to keep a familiar face that's familiar with what the team is all about. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree. I, I think keeping his at-bats and his games um, you know, more to a minimum, you can maximize his production. And you think of guys like Torres or Romine in the past, people who seem to have stepped up when their number was called. It's because... You know, they're not playing every day, and opposing pitchers can't really, you know, pinpoint their weaknesses right away. They're not playing every day, and, and those are the players that you see kind of fall off a little once they have to step into everyday roles. So for a guy like Gardner, who's a little bit on the decline, I think it's great to bring him back and, and play him when, you know, play him against a righty or when someone in the outfield needs a rest and keep Gardner's legs fresh, and I think that, that will pay off, and you know, we'll see what other moves they make in the outfield, but I, I like this move. And we've seen that in the past too with other former Yankees. When it, you know, when Tino came back for his last year in '05 as a role player, I mean, he had some really big hits early on in the season. Um, and then Bernie, and even in his last season in '06, when he wasn't playing as much, he was he was you know a productive player. And and Bernie's last year was you know no, nothing terrible uh, by any stretch. So. Hopefully Gardner uh, transitions well to this role. Um, I mean, I, I guess as of now he is the left fielder, but I'm sure that won't that won't stay. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm happy to keep the longest tenured Yankee around. He's you know one of one of my favorite Yankees, and you know and another one of my favorite Yankees was in the news. You know, Robertson dropping his agent and his his statement saying that. His agent's a good guy, but he knows what's best for him and like what he's looking for in his contract. And I'm just curious, what do you what do you think Robertson's trying to get at by like dropping his agent? And like obviously he has something very specific in mind. Do you have any inkling of what that could be? I, I honestly have no idea. I mean I, I I would guess it means he's pointing towards wanting to stay with the Yankees because the Yankees are a team and an organization that he's already dealt with multiple times in his career. And maybe doesn't feel like he needs an agent for that. I, I guess I feel like if you were planning on moving to a different organization and and you know going through negotiations with people you're not familiar with, you would want an agent by your side. So maybe that means Robertson plans on coming back. I, I'm not. I'm not sure. It's it's a it's an odd move. I think maybe especially in in you know today's game where everyone has an agent and someone to market them to the highest possible amount but you know whatever the reason is Robertson's a seasoned veteran he knows what he's doing and hopefully this means he's just going to come to the Yankees and and say you know sign me up for for another year and I mean we saw how effective he was last year he I think he still can be that way next year he relies on those vicious breaking balls and and his accuracy more than his velocity so I I absolutely think he can still be an effective reliever next year, and I'd love to have him back. Yeah, I me too. And I just I'm kind of curious to see how it plays out because it was very it was a kind of an odd situation, but we'll see what happens, I guess. And you know that's kind of really it that's going on in Yankee Land right now. Um, we're not going to talk about the World Series. Um, what because, World Series? Yeah, exactly. Um, so instead today, what we can do is we can kind of reflect on, since it is Halloween and it, it, we're recording so late, we might become Mr. November as, as we're recording, but you know, let's, let's look back on the good moments of October and, and, you know, I think the best place to start is going back to the beginning and kind of really putting a, 
You know what's amazing though? We have so much real estate in the Red Sox brain that even like Cora is like bringing, telling the Yankee fans to suck it during the parade. Like, are you really that <laughs> insecure? Like, I mean, the Red Sox have been extremely successful lately, but they still they can't get over the Yankees, and that all begins with Babe Ruth. And we talked to Jane about that today. It's it's funny before we get into that. Um, I saw a comment on a Pinstripe Alley article. And it was just said so well how, you know, the Red Sox, in terms of World Series, have clearly been enjoying more success since 2004, yet it seems like, you know, two rounds after knocking the Yankees out, the Yankees are still on their minds. And and, and he talked about how, you know, the domination of the Yankees in the 20th century over the Red Sox seems, seems to have left such an indelible mark on people in Boston that it just always comes back to the Yankees for them just because they were owned for so many years and decades and an entire century. So, you know, it's, 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 it's funny to see, I I guess, you know, trying to look at it from a Yankee fan's perspective, had the Yankees just won the world series, I, I guess I just feel like the Red Sox would be the last thing from Yankees fans minds. But, you know, we've also never been on that side of the rivalry before where we were, you know, just utterly dominated for a hundred years. So who knows what that's like to finally have conquered that. But I definitely thought it was interesting that it keeps coming back to New York, New York and the Yankees or whatever other trolling may be going on. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't get it. Cause like, I think of it from my perspective, like in hockey, you're a devil's fan and I'm a Rangers fan. And I was seven years old the last time the Rangers won the cup. I have no, well, six really. I have no recollection of it. And the Devils have won a bunch of cups since then and knocked the Rangers out the last time they met in the postseason. And if the Rangers won the cup in three years, let's say, when they're rebuilt and beat the Devils on the, like, let's say the conference semis or something like that the last thing i'd be thinking about after winning the cup is going back two rounds and like shoving it in your face like you would know they want like you know but i don't get it but whatever maybe we're just bitter i don't know but that's 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 what it seems like from from our perspective maybe living uh rent free in their heads even still after all these years But um, a big reason why that might be the case is because of Babe Ruth and the curse of the Bambino, whether it was real or not. You can't deny how the sale of Babe Ruth to the Yankees completely changed the tide of both franchises for 86 years afterward. And we talked to Jane Levy, who just wrote uh, Big Fella, and it's a new take on Babe Ruth and just opened up a whole bunch of different new outlooks on you know, a character that everyone thought they had figured out. But after eight years of research by Jane, I thought that was incredible when I learned that. Eight years of researching one topic, pretty pretty incredible. But um, uh, we talked to Jane, and here she is talking about her new book, Big Fella. All right, so we are joined now by Jane Levy. She is the author of Big Fella, the new biography on Babe Ruth, and also wrote uh, Last Boy, another fantastic story, that one about Mickey Mantle. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. I'm about 300 pages through, but just an incredible read so far. Thank you so much for saying that. So something that keeps popping in my mind as, as I read the book is, you know, Babe Ruth obviously arguably the most polarizing figure in baseball history. So many people 
have wrote about him, yet you find a way to keep things fresh from, from a different angle. A lot of point of view from the press and how they tried to cover every move he made. So what were the challenges for you to kind of approach this book from a new angle since he's been covered so many times over the decades? Well, first I had to go have my brain examined to make sure I wasn't <laughs> entirely nuts. Um, and, and it did take eight years. So if I wasn't crazy at the beginning, I was completely nuts by the end. Um, basically, I, the first year I refused to sign a contract um, until I could do enough work and find enough new to convince myself that there was, in fact, a different story to tell and a different way to tell it. And um, it took a different kind of reporting than what I'm used to. I mean, I'm, I went to journalism school at Columbia University, and, you know, I learned how to interview and how to ask questions and elicit information. Um, but you can't do that with people who are dead. So <laughs> that posed a little bit of a challenge. Um, and my Ouija board doesn't work that well. So um, uh, I had to find new material in archives and in documents that wouldn't have been available to all the previous biographers who um, have added something new or different to the, the telling of his life story, you know, beginning with probably Tom Meany and uh, Ford Frick's um, uh, ghostwritten account in 28, and before that, Westbrook Pedler's newspaper serial in 1920, which um, he admitted 25 years later uh, he had entirely made up, and he had never spoken to Beirut. But that first newspaper serial um, was what so many of the following writers used and based their accounts on without realizing that he had never spoken to the babe. So um, it, it took, it was, like, it was like making a mosaic only out of little pieces of information and um, clippings from newspapers that are long dead. Um, as opposed to, you know, pieces of glass that you would make a, a floor mosaic with. And so it was kind of painstaking in that way, because um, I could sort of see the outline of a big picture uh, uh, of a big fella, um, but filling it in was mind-boggling. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the main points that that you cover, at least so far in where I'm at in the book, is is the um, work of the babe and his marketing agent, Christy Walsh. And, and they just really seemed so far ahead of their time in, in terms of mar uh, you know the athlete marketing themselves, something that all athletes today try their best to do with endorsements and public appearances and things like that. How much of a forward thinker was the babe and, and how much of it was really just the work of Christy Walsh? Well, there's no doubt that Christy Walsh was a visionary. Um, and, and as I've been known to say, the real Jerry Maguire, or the real model for Jerry Maguire, um, you know, uh, 80 years before the fact. Uh, he, was a, he was a broke, um, out of work, advertising man, PR guy, newspaper cartoonist, and um, cub reporter 
when he latched on to the babe in February 21 with an idea for syndicating newspaper columns, ghostwritten newspaper columns under his byline. And that, that had been around in baseball and other sports for a long time, and it had always been sort of vaguely tolerated, though controversial. Um, but Walsh made a, made a whole system out of it. And once he had the babe, you know, everyone else followed suit. So he ended up with, you know, everybody from Walter Johnson and Rogers Hornsby to Gehrig and Newt Rockney and Pop, uh, uh, Pop Warner and, you know, and Dizzy Dean and on down the road. Um, and it was for a very significant period of time, basically from 1921 until he closed the syndicate in uh, 37, um, a very, very lucrative business, both for him and for the athletes, because until until he came along with that system, there was no way for fans to actually hear what they thought was an athlete's voice. You know, as, as the years went by and you know, when radio became entrenched, particularly with advertising, by the late 20s and early 30s, then you could actually start to hear what they, what they sounded like. But other than that, you really didn't know. And um, so this created the illusion, anyway, that, you, that, they, that the big guys were talking right to you. Um, Babe was not that kind of thinker, but he had a very, very acute sense of his own worth and um, a very modern sense of what was right about uh, and what was wrong about the way baseball, baseball players were played. And he, you know, he basically said, you know, we're bringing something to the game and, um, and I deserve to get paid for it. You know, it isn't just that what he was, the balls he was hitting out of the ballpark that he deserved to get paid for, but the personages he was bringing into the ballpark. So the real revolutionary idea was to market an athlete as an entertainer. And that was the, the big breakthrough that he and Walsh um, really devised. And, and the aspect of the two of them going and renegotiating the Babes contract with the Yankees definitely illustrated that, I think. And it was one of the more entertaining parts of the book, at least where I'm at so far. And obviously... Well, well, Christie couldn't get into the actual negotiations. Uh, the, the, the owners hold, held firm on that until even oh, until Marvin Miller came along in, in the mid and late 60s. Even Roger Maris, after hitting 61 home runs, wasn't allowed to bring his brother, who was an accountant, uh, into his negotiations with George Weiss in 1962. So Christie, what Christie tried to do was to tutor the babe in the art of negotiation, and he did role-playing with him on a train ride um, from L.A. Uh, through into Utah uh, to Salt Lake, um, where they, they Christie said, now if Jake says this, then what do you say? And, then, you know, he was, he was feeding him the lines of what he was supposed to say. And um, while Babe Ruth came away with a three-year, $70,000 per year contract, which was certainly unprecedented, um, Walsh was definitely looking for more 
um, and wanted Ruth to go in and had been floating the idea that he should be paid 150 grand a year, thinking for sure that Dave would manage not to settle for less than 100 grand. But he, uh, but <laughs> he walked away with uh, his 210,000, which wasn't bad for the time. So, and, and the MLB didn't seem to treat Ruth with much positivity after he retired. And something that you cover so well in the book is, you know, the relationship or lack thereof between the babe and his parents. Um, his his mother is covered very well in the book, and and also a lot of the racial insults that that the babe had to deal with during his playing career. In in putting this book together, were you surprised by? learning how much the babe had to endure while he was, you know, on this path to stardom? Um, yeah, I, I was, and I would say that um, I didn't go into this thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get a whole new vision of who this guy was and, you know, the formative events in his childhood. I certainly hoped for it, Um because after all, you know, those are the things that determine who each of us becomes. And, and Babe's childhood was, by and large, completely missing from all the biographies I read um, before I agreed to do this. And it, it was the lack of anything about his childhood that made me suspicious that there was something that was being deliberately left out. And, in fact, there was a lot deliberately left out. And his childhood was um, far worse uh, than I ever imagined. And I admired him far more than I ever expected for having dealt with it so incredibly well. I mean, there, there were two myths about Babe Ruth's childhood. One was that he was an orphan. I'm, I'm in St. Louis, and in the St. Louis airport, uh, you know, there were, was a sign not that long ago from a now fit called values.com that does sort of, um, you know, message, uplifting messages. It's a, it's a picture of the babe, and it says, from the orphanage to the Hall of Fame. Um, well, St. Mary's, where he was sent, wasn't an orphanage, but the only reason people thought that Babe Ruth was an orphan was, A, he never really talked about his parents, and they disappeared, and B, because of St. Mary's, took in some orphans. St. Mary's was, in fact, a, a reform school um, that also accepted uh, what were called wayward boys and what were called incorrigible boys, those who were sent by the courts for having, in some way, violated a law. And that was the other story about Babe Ruth, that he was an incorrigible and that his parents had gotten a justice of the peace somewhere to sign a, an order, you know, remanding him to the care of the Zavarian brothers who ran St. Mary's. Now, it turns out that's not true either. Um, but that is the basis for the whole legend that he was this really bad, unruly kid who had to be brought to heel um, by the by the brothers at, at St. Mary's. The truth um, is ugly, and the truth is that his family disintegrated, that um, at least four, that he witnessed the death of at least four siblings um, by the time he was seven or eight, um, 
two of them died from malnutrition, uh, which I, in fact I found in the, on the death certificates of those children, um, and that his parents' marriage ended when George Ruth Sr. Um, caught his wife um, in a compromising uh, situation with his bartender. And he had his wife and the bartender arrested, and he filed suit for divorce and, and was granted not only the divorce within three months, but granted custody of the three surviving children at that, there were three children at that point, the youngest of whom would die uh, three months after the divorce um, in an institution uh, out, of the, out of Baltimore City um, of malnutrition. And so, you know, you can hardly blame a seven-year-old boy for um, not wanting to talk about it, or an adult, <laughs> such as the babe, not wanting to reveal those kinds of um, family difficulties. And, you know, I think he, my heart goes out to him. Uh, you know, the more I learned, the more I thought, Oh my God, he was seven years old and they sent him away, even though two of his, you know, even, even though there were only two kids left, they still didn't want him. You know, what must that have felt like? It, it had to have felt terrible. And, and it laid the groundwork for the big fella he became. It was somebody who needed to be surrounded by people and was most comfortable being surrounded by legions of admirers, most of them young boys, like the ones he went to school with. Really, uh, really sad stuff, Jane. And, um, you know, th that that's the kind of story that, you know, it, if it's a player today, it obviously gets out um, a lot sooner and people understand it and everything like that. But, uh, you know, something I've been thinking about looking back on the Babe's career is how do you think he would be perceived today? Um, I mean, there was the, you know, the bellyache heard around the world and everything like that. And, and you see it with players even that have had uh, overcome a lot. Like Yasiel Puig has went through um, has went through really tough times to get to the major leagues. And he shows a lot of joy in playing and, and he gets criticized by a lot of fans. Uh, how do you think Babe Ruth would have been perceived uh, by the public uh, today? Well, you know, I, I don't think um, anything would have been kept could have been kept secret for over a century. That's the first thing. Um, that that wouldn't have happened. Um, and I think he would be surrounded by um, the uh, the sons of Christy Walsh, the you know metaphoric sons of Christy Walsh. I mean, Christy uh, was doing spin control, spin and damage control, long before those words entered the vocabulary. Um, and, you know, they, the story, they, they would try to control the story by putting it out in some form to some reporter they trusted who they knew would give a sympathetic um, rendering. And why wouldn't somebody give a sympathetic rendering to that? Um, and, uh, and he'd be protected um, by a phalanx of agents with... Uh, body men who would follow him around um, to make sure that he wasn't photographed by um, in compromising positions with um, by cell phone cameras. Yeah, the technology sure changes it, and that's kind of crazy. And, and one of the things that 
because the technology wasn't there that is left up for debate after all this time, of course, is the called shot. And, you, you know, you've done all the research for the book, and I know it's a story that's been told so many times, but after doing all the research, do you think he called his shot or not? Well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not sure anybody, you know, look, I, I think history is being rewritten every day right. because of the availability of new documents like the ones I found at the Maryland State Archives and the uh, New York and Massachusetts State Archives, and also because of the availability and, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> That's no problem. Yeah, that was my editor calling. Sorry. sorry. Um, and the availability of uh digitized newspapers where you can find little facts that just some somehow never made it into print. Um, so um, uh, I think that, um, you know, it's possible that, that some further information, some more definitive film than what has already emerged will, will turn up um, that, that will clarify it. What, what, I was interested in in retelling it, and whole books have been written about this, not just not just chapters. Um, I mean, I'm more interested in the potency of the myth and the babe's ability once he realized what this was worth to go along with it. You know, people would say, "Well, did you call it?" He said, "Well, you read the papers, don't you?" You know, um, but there was an alternate history that was being told in the African-American press, um, even, even then. And that, that involved um, a, a press secretary for a Negro League team, the 47th Street Giants in Chicago, who was sitting out in the grandstand out there at Wrigley and throwing lemons and hurling epithets at the babe. Now, if the babe was widely believed in the African-American community to be passing. Um, and he was also taunted by white players, opponents, um, about that for years. I mean, it's the dugout's not for sissies, and if you'll figure out a way to get under somebody's skin, and in this case that metaphor was, like, literal, um, uh, you know, you would. And so they would hurl the nastiest kinds of racial epithets at him, um, which actually started on the playgrounds of St. Mary's for no reason other than he had a wide nose and thick lips and was darkly complected from being out in the sun all the time. Um, and nobody knew that there was any fact to it. They just called him names. Um, and there's... There's a couple of instances where he actually responded to that. But anyway, what, what I was going to say is that, that in, in the African-American press uh, accounts of the called shot, um, he isn't pointing at Charlie Root. Um, he's um, responding to the racial taunting uh, being hurled at him from the Cubs dugout and from uh, Amos Lattimore, Loudmouth Lattimore, the traveling secretary of the Chicago 47th Street Giants. Um, and 
you know, there's, there's again, there's nobody who can tell uh, definitively um, whether that's true, but it certainly raises the possibility that there was a, <laughs> that he was doing it for a different reason. Interesting stuff, and the mystery continues. That's Jane Levy. Her new book, The Big Fella, is out now, and I recommend everybody go read it. Jane, thank you so much. Great stuff. Very interesting, and I can't wait to go home tonight and knock out a couple more chapters. I really hope you enjoy it, guys. All right, huge thanks again to Jane Levy. Just Sean, I think uh, it was it was definitely a lot of information, new information to take in. I'm, I'm sure you know for you, you haven't started the book yet, so some of the things I had already learned, but still just amazing to you know read a biography of someone who I've read about so many times in my life, and just here I am learning all these new things about arguably the most famous player in baseball history. Probably the most famous athlete in in sports history. I mean, what he did transcended any any sport. And yeah, I mean, like she said, it's not worth writing a book if you're not putting any new information in it. But this uncovers things that were quite shocking and um, you know quite quite tragic about about Babe Ruth. And it was really interesting uh, to get to talk to her about it. And I'm really excited to read the book now. Yeah, I. Highly recommend it to anyone. I'm not even finished yet, but I've, I'm already loving it and squeezing in a chapter and every ounce of free time I can find. And she dives into every part of his life from his, you know, not very well-known childhood struggles that he went through with his family, um, gives her take on the famous called shot game. And, and maybe that's a good transition because we... Uh, Sean and I thought it would be a good idea after um, that disaster of a World Series that we choose to assume never existed this year. We thought it would be good to take a trip down memory lane and maybe do a, pick our 10 favorite Yankee postseason moments that we would have wanted to be at. and you know, Cleansing, I, I, cleansing our palate. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's interesting because when we were – when we were talking to Jane, we had already, you know, quote unquote, drafted our our game picks for ones that we would have wanted to be at. And when we were talking about the called shot, part of me was like, man, I kind of wish I had picked a game like that because you could you could you have imagined being there and, and just being in the stands and seeing him point towards center field where you don't really know what's going on, but you see him point out there and then you see him put one over the center field fence and just I, I and and of course it's the World Series when that's going on. So that I I didn't pick it, but I think that certainly should be close on the list, especially looking back on what a historic event it wound up becoming. Well, I mean, justice. Well, he's he's no longer a Supreme Court justice, but you know, so former Supreme Court justice John Stevens, who was a Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. So I hope. You know, a little, little dicey subject in politics these days. But let's assume <laughs> let's assume they're they're honorable. Says that, and he was at the game and says Babe Ruth sure as hell called his shot. So I choose to believe it really happened. Oh, I don't think I would put anything past a legend like Babe Ruth who swings 
54-ounce bat or something ridiculous like that. But anyway, we're going to keep our picks more towards the modern era. I think our earliest pick goes back to 1995 in terms of uh, games that we would have loved to be at in the postseason. So, Well, we did it that way just because it would be things that would mean something to us. So like as cool as it would have been to be like be at the Bucky Dent game, that's really not within our, our memory. And, you know, my earliest memories are vague of the 95 team and then very intense from 96 on. So that's why we kind of did that cutoff. Likewise, likewise. So, so we'll go from, from number 10 down to number one. And we kind of just did a back and forth pick and whichever one we drafted, we, suddenly had a ticket to that game and we went and the other one went to the ones he picked so um all right so coming in at number 10 the 96 alcs the jeffrey mayer game oh i i mean that for me just watching bernie hit the walk off at the end you know a four o'clock game and that that was kind of like that they had made it to that championship series the second round and now the freight train was moving and it was just, uh, I, I mean, such a wild game. And and even looking back on it now to, to the Jeffrey Mayer thing that happened with Benitez on the mound and Benitez runs all the way out to left field. And I mean, just such a crazy moment. And like that becomes part of the Yankee stadium lore and, you know, part of Jeter's lore and, and like the bird, it, it just had so many different storylines that it, it's just a game that meant a lot to me. I remember very vividly watching it uh you know in our living room as a family and that's just like something that I'll, I'll never forget and it, and it was a great pick by you also because you think about what it would have been like to be there at that time in 1996 where there is no social media there is no instant you know replay posted online this is what happened a lot of people in the stadium are just like what the hell just happened tony tarasco's flipping out <laughs> and and um so yeah that was a great pick and and definitely um, set the tone for that series and arguably was a stroke of luck that sparked a Yankee dynasty. So, so solid pick by you. And, and Mike and the Mad Dog actually jumped on the air after that That's game. That's right. Ended. Yeah. And like, you can find that on YouTube, hearing them react, like speaking of reaction. So that was really cool. And that's just, and you know what, like Bernie, he, Bernie will never get enough credit for what he did here. And that's that was one of two. I mean, you think about it. Game one of a seven-game series is so huge. That's one of two walk-off home runs he hit in game one of ALCS series. So just And Bernie was just unconscious in 96 postseason. Yeah. So. Won, won the ALCS MVP that year. And, oh, funny, funny we bring up Bernie Williams' appreciation, which is always a good time to do that. But we were late to record today because I had to cover a story in Cheshire, Connecticut for work. And I actually drove past the Academy where the Yankees actually hid Bernie Williams when they were trying to sign. him. So, <laughs> so everything comes full circle here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's pretty intense. And, uh, I guess moving on to the number nine game, we had um, the the greatest game that John Smoltz ever pitched. But the problem was that Andy Pettit just was a little bit better that day. And that's game five of the 96 World Series. And a lot of 96 World Series games show up. But, uh, I mean, this was just a duel for the ages. And, and you know, this was pre-bullpenning and something that was just really incredible. And uh, this was your pick. Why'd you take it? So, you know, I, I had... I had game three of this recent World Series so fresh in my mind. And, you know, it was just, you know, game five and 96 didn't go to extra innings, but I was just watching 
um, a guy like Eovaldi just deal in extra innings and knowing that just one run would mean such a big difference and, and could swing the whole tide of a series. And, and I think back to that game and you have, you know, just the storylines just created this perfect storm. You had Pettit who got absolutely rocked in game one. Here he is now on the road with the series tied, the momentum on starting. Short rest. Yeah. And, and the, the momentum starting to shift towards the Yankees, but you have to get past a guy like Smoltz who was so dominant in the Bronx in game one. And Pettit comes out and just throws maybe the greatest starting pitching performance I had ever seen. And I just think back to that jam he got into when it was first and second and nobody out. A lot out. more poise. And, and we saw that in the World Series this year with um, with Kenta Maeda with the sack bunt. And he goes right to third base in that <laughs> same game. I, I think just, wow, so many so many parallels. And, and the yeah, exactly, the bunt back to Pettit, a bare hand and throw to third all in one motion. And then he gets Chipper Jones, who was unreal that series up to that point, gets him to ground right back to him. He turns a double play. And then just the the tension of the end of that game and that ball hit by Polonia against Wetland. O'Neal runs it down. Just I, you know, home runs are great, but I also love a good pitcher's duel where the slightest infield single or stolen base could just could decide the game. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'll, in my life, I think the most intense game I ever was at was game three of the division series last year. Cause it was a one, nothing pitchers duel. And, um, and, and that's what makes pitchers duel so great. It's like, you think about the play where Jermaine die loses the ball in the lights in game five and that the whole game turn turns on that moment. But then, you know, you have other rallies that, that, that don't come through and, you know, you have the decision to let Pettit hit, uh, against Wallers, and it's just like all this this crazy stuff that that really it, it sheds a light on your manager. But that was really the, I mean, Pettit had a great year in '96, but that was kind of the crowning moment for his uh, for his season. I'm just, I'm just laughing thinking about. Can you imagine Twitter today if Joe Torre had when, let Pettit go bad against one of the greatest closers in the league at the time with a one nothing lead with the series tied two two? I, I mean. He he obviously got away with it, but that could have been a, a monumental mistake. But Pettit, you know, I wouldn't say he necessarily delivered because he kind of got into a jam in that ninth inning after he went back out. But I mean, what more can you say about the start that he put out there for Tory? And um, and for your next pick, all we have to do is go back a couple days or the day before that '96 World Series Game Four. Jim Lairitz, enough said. But why'd you go with that game? Uh, I was surprised this dropped all the way to eighth because, I mean, this is one of the great, great games in Yankee history. And, um, I, I mean, there, this was just – I don't really think I need to explain why I picked this game, honestly. It was yeah. such a such a classic game. You have losing 6 nothing in the sixth inning, and then they have this sixth inning rally that starts with Jeter – getting the, you know, getting the hit and, um, after the foul ball falls, uh, you know, uh, because the umpire is in the way and then they have this rally and then, then all of a sudden you get this kind of quirky rally in the eighth inning where, you know, you have a botched double play ball, a ball that just rolls down the line and Lairitz comes up and, and Wallers misreads his swings and thinks he needs to fool him with a slider and that slider hangs in it. And the rest is history, and and that's an, like another thing too. And then you get to the tenth inning, and, and like Joe Torre manages this game so well that I think Bobby Cox forgets he has 
Wade Boggs sitting on his bench to pinch hit, and Wade Boggs has a tremendous at-bat. I think he was down 1-2 in the count and yep. winds up working a walk. And just, like, right there, you're, you're losing 2-1 in the World Series, and you're down 6 nothing. It's looking like your season is not going to work out the way that you want it to. And then you have this amazing win on the road, and now all of a sudden you have this tidal wave of momentum. And, I mean, that's really where the, the script flips for the 96 Yankees. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about this more in another game, but that's really what starts this kind of whole magical run that gets people our age sucked in, hook, line, and sinker. All right, so for um, number – oh, did I go twice in a row? Oh no! You're, no, but you—you were going to say I thought you were going to say something else about that game, but well, like no, you said, like you said, there's just enough said. I mean, the the layer it's home run, six, just sex here in the eighth. Yeah, also a great call by Joe Buck. A lot of people have given him slack over the years, but he made a lot of great calls that series. And what yeah. was his first World Series that he announced? I agree. The only call he had that. Still bothers me is O'Neill is there because O'Neill was he was not yeah he, was not, he, he just got there yeah Tim McCarver um, corrected him after that saying yeah. what a play by Paul O'Neill and, and Tim McCarver had a good series too because he calls that Wallers is going to the breaking ball mm-hmm. too much he you know they were very aware of that uh, so that's that's ten nine and eight and going to number seven we only have to go back a little bit over a year that's uh, last year's wild card game. Um, I would say that first inning is probably one of the most intense innings that we've had since, you know, in five years of Yankee baseball. And yeah. you got to witness it. What was it like? Yeah, it's funny. I This is the only one on the list that one of us picked where we were already actually at the game. And I think that just speaks to how incredible the atmosphere was. It's, you know, it, it was an upstart Yankee team that no one expected to be where they were. But once they got there, then, of course, the expectation is now win that game. And then who knows what's going to happen against a team like the Indians. But, man, that first inning was it was such a roller coaster. But I think what made it so fun was even though that start was so disastrous, I don't think the crowd noise ever dipped even after they immediately went down 3 nothing, And then had then the Twins had runners on second and third after that. And then just the electricity when Chad Green gets out of that and before – there's even a chance to settle down. DD ties it. And it, it was just, that game was just such a perfect microcosm of that season. You had Judge come through with the home run. DD obviously, with his big home run. You had big hits by Sanchez and Bird. The bullpen was just completely dominant. So all these, all these young, you know, homegrown talents that fans were so excited about that year came up big on the big stage and... You know, for as much, you know, for as ridiculous as the wild card game could be, especially this year when, you know, a hundred win Yankee team is fighting for their lives over one game. As as ridiculous as that format could be, sometimes the intensity of of being there when it's win or go home and your season's over, it's it's definitely incredibly exciting after the fact as long as your team wins. Yeah, I, I actually I don't mind the wild card setup. It was a pain in the neck this year, but uh, I mean, you know, we could talk about that another day. But I I like games that are kind of like you said, like a microcosm. I like games that are kind of like moments, in, like that summarize a season. And I thought this game was great at that because you know, like you were saying, the crowd it was different than it had been um, post the post the core four era, right? Like 
you could tell as soon as soon as the crowd sensed Irvin Santana had nothing, they were in on every pitch. They were making every pitch tough for him. And, and that was sort of like that was the game that it was like, okay, Yankee Stadium's back and this team is now it's not just a flash in the pan season. Now we're going to go and we're going to play the Indians after we win this game. And, I, you know, th- that was such such a great game, um, you know, in, in recent Yankee history. All right. So moving on, which would probably be about the pinnacle of the last Yankee dynasty when they were the best team ever. I'll hear no counter argument about the team that won it this year. This 98 Yankees team was the greatest of all time. uh, All right. They had a better regular season winning percentage and a better postseason winning percentage. So don't come at (laughs) and a better Pythagorean runs record. So just don't come at me with that kind of weak shit. The 98 (laughs) Yankees are the greatest team of all time. Period. Stop. And they swept the World Series. And one of those games was in 98. Why'd you pick it? You have, you have game two written on this list that I'm reading off. It, no, it's game one. I just I, I made the one. Oh, okay. The I was I, I was a little confused. I was like, wait, he could mean game. Just, I, he could mean game three because of the Brocious home run. But I feel like I know you, and you picked game one because of the Bamtino. Well, that was you know that was the greatest Grand Slam in history of baseball. <laughs> um, I that two two pitch was low. I'll hear nothing of it. Um, that I don't. That I think there is a counter argument towards, but. <laughs> But hey, you need some good fortune, and the Yankees always seem to capitalize on those back in the day. Well, I picked this game because when I had to, pick, we had to pick something from the '98 season, and um, the game one always to me, it's it's just such a it's a great comeback at home, and it kind of capitalizes on what that team was all about that year. And then game three, what Brochus does is absolutely incredible, and it's an it's an amazing game. But it was like. We are, we are, you already had your shot at us, and it's just now it's just a matter of time. And, and game one kind of was that okay, Wells didn't have it, he's down 5 2. Yankees had went ahead 2 nothing on that Ricky Day double, which, which was incredible. And then you have these two guys you have Knobloch and Tino, both guys that were in the doghouse. Knobloch for the blockhead play where he points, you know, at, at, at the runner, and then Tino because he had been terrible in the postseason. Knobloch ties the game with the three and homer. And then Tino launches one into the upper deck. I mean, that's that's my favorite crowd reaction um, for any home run uh, in, that I've ever seen for the Yankees. That uh, you see the beer come flying out of the upper deck, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of the times where Michael K sort of over the top calls really worked with the seven runs in the seventh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and what makes it more special is that's my tenth um, or my eleventh birthday party. I have all my friends over and we watched the grand slam go into the upper deck together. Like that, that was wild. And you know, what do you remember from, from that game? I remember your friends being over and I remember a lot of pandemonium, but, um, but yeah, I remember, um, you know, kind of similar to the wild card game that we just talked about. You had this Yankee team that everyone was so excited about. They get down early in that game and um, but even though they got down, you never really thought they were out of it, especially when guys like Donnie Wall were pitching, trying to protect the lead. And um, and you know yeah, that that was a great you know for as much as Knobloch kind of you know ran into some other issues on and off the field. Right, but like that, at the time when you're at, watching, yeah, exactly. You don't know that. And yeah. and it was a great moment. Just you know he he hits it and he's just kind of standing in place, just knowing that. 
you know, not ready to celebrate yet, but he seemed to know like he, he got it all. And, um, and he did. And, um, and then of course, Tino did not need to stand in place. That was gone off the bat and he could just keep on going. And, um, hop. Yeah, that is, that's a great, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of like the new Luke Voigt gallop when he when he hits a home run. Tino had that little turn and hop whenever he would pull one over the uh, right field short porch, but that was not short porch. That was upper deck. But anyway, yeah. Uh, so going um, back even further, and uh, th- this is just a classic game that you picked um, for, for multiple reasons. One, because you have a back and forth dramatic game. And two, because it really is the crowning, uh, you know, the coronation of of Don Mattingly's career, and that's game two of the 95 division series. Yes, you said your favorite home run crowd reaction was the Tino Grand Slam. Mine was the Mattingly home run. You talk about beer cans and beer cups flying around in the stadium after he hit that. I mean, I... I man, I wish I was at that game. Just not just his home run. Ruben Sierra hit one of the most mammoth home runs I've ever seen at Yankee Stadium in the playoffs. And then Paul O'Neill hits one. And um, but but the Mattingly one was was the highlight for me. Um, and, and also just oh, and nice, Jim Larritz, by the way. <laughs> oh, of course, the walk off in the fifteenth inning that helped me in my decision to pick this one also, but the Mattingly home runs the one that stands out the most, just because you think of the guy, he was just loved by Yankee fans for so many years. And, and you know, he's nearing the end of his career and what would be the end of his career. And he's hit, and he's hitting the ball well after dealing with all those back problems. And, you know, it, it would be his first and only chance on, on the big stage of the playoffs. And I mean, what a way to deliver with, with that home run. And it was, you know, back to back and belly to belly for him and Ruben Sierra. So, I mean, just it's one that I don't really remember much myself. I was only got five years old at the time, but it's still one of those highlights that I watch a lot. And also because it was helped by one of the best home run calls I could remember. Gary Thorne, they need to bring him back to the playoffs. Gary, Gary Thorne is the best uh, play by play announcer in hockey. Sorry, Doc Emmerich, but Gary Thorne still has you beat, and and in baseball, and that's a hot take. That's a hot take. I love Gary Thorne though. Yeah, but I mean, all of his calls in that game, the O'Neill homer, the Sierra homer, but the mustard, the mustard on, her, on baby. her baby, and and Sierra tied the game, I think, in the thirteenth, and I mean, that's a uh, that was just such a wild game. Pettit started the game. Rivera pitched three and a third scoreless innings for the win. Actually, Rivera won. I think. Four of the games on our list. I was figuring it out right when we started <laughs> Skyping. And I had went that he he had gotten to 11 and two-thirds innings when I stopped, uh, when you called me, and had not given up a run as far back as I – but I still hadn't gotten to three of the games. So pretty incredible, my Mo. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is probably my second favorite home run crowd reaction. And I could, like, pick out specific people in the bleachers and <laughs> watch them go nuts. Um, there's one guy with a jean jacket that he's, like, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, you know who I'm talking about, and, and yeah, the O'Neill homer. What a what a great crazy game! And really, that was if 2017 was the start of the current run that we're hoping the Yankees go on. That game was the start of the you know the the never never say die attitude that that dynasty had. Speaking of 2017, we better speed this up a little. Let's get so caught up in these uh, great memories that we were spoiled with, but you. Went with another 2017 game, one of the, like John Sterling said, one of the best rallies I think I've ever seen as well, the 2017 ALCS Game 4. 
Yeah, that's um, I know that's really high up for I, I picked it really early. It was kind of like a sleeper pick, I guess, if in fantasy terms. <laughs> but um, the, the thing about that game to, to me, it, it will always be that that there it was almost like game six or game four of ninety six, right? They're they're down four nothing in the seventh inning, and it's looking like okay, this magical carpet ride that they've been on with this team that was supposed to be in a rebuilding year, it's going to end, and we we wouldn't have been shocked. Then all of a sudden, Judge hits the solo home run, and everybody kind of starts to get back into it, and everybody contributes to this rally. I mean, you know, one of the things I watch so much is the Chase Headley <laughs> base running thing, and just like Judge then ties it with a ball off the wall. You know, uh, Gardner has a productive out, and then Sanchez has this double, and, and the Joe Buck call on that is is awesome, and the crowd's going nuts, and it's like this, it's. I mean, you're watching it, and I'm getting, like, choked up while I'm watching it. Like, this team could go to the World Series, and, like, that's the first time I really thought, like, holy shit, this this could really happen. And and for me, that was – all right, so the wild card game is, like, okay, they're here. But the this game was the – they're not only here, they're they're here to make noise. Like, they're, they're, this, this team is for real, real. Yeah, they were for real, and – I mean, just another kind of like what we said about the wild card game. All those young players that had been so hyped up when they first got here and, and through all the regular season, they really stepped up in, in that rally. And um, that I, I, we weren't there, but I'm sure that the noise level probably eclipsed that of the wild card game. It, it sure looked like it. I always think back to that one clip of um, Gregorius running into the dugout and like high-fiving everyone that had come out to um, congratulate him for scoring that sixth run. And, and it's almost hard to make out who's who because the camera's shaking so much because like everyone was going so crazy. So, And it certainly had to, had an effect on the Astros, as we learned after Game 5. And unfortunately, the Astros had one more home game than the Yankees that year. But Yeah, I mean, I one of my friends that was there had to actually cancel his morning meetings because he had no voice the next day. So that's pretty crazy. And I'm sure as we get to the top three now that uh, all these games, people would have had no voice after either. And uh, number three is um, the Mr. November uh, game four of the 2001 World Series. And uh, you you picked it. But, you know, this this game is near and dear to my heart, too, because because Tino hits the hits the home run with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. And I'll turn it over to you to talk about Jeter. But I still think that the Yankees in game four and five hitting the two out two run homers to tie the game is the most incredible thing I've ever seen in baseball. The most improbable thing I've ever seen in baseball to do it on that stage in, in what are swing games. It's not like they were up to nothing in the series or, or anything like that. Um, when Tino hit that Homer, it, it saved the Yankees chances in that world series. It, it, it's a moment I'll never forget. I went wild and, and that whole thing, that whole series meant more because of what had happened, um, you know, on September 11th, and it kind of felt more intense because the Yankees were playing for maybe something more. But Tino hits this home run, I go nuts, and it sets the stage for Jeter. Yeah, I mean, you think about us and our favorite players of all time being Tino and Jeter, and it's kind of combined should be our number one, just given who came up in in the big spots. But I, I would totally agree. Games four and five of that series, regardless of the outcome of the World Series, was it's just some of the most incredible moments that I've ever seen. And just, I mean, it just felt like only that 
team who was nearing the end of its run, but like only that team could just spark that kind of excitement and, and emotion. And, and, you know, it, the funny part is just because they had been winning so much and coming back and, and beating all these great teams in the world series over the years, even though they were down to their last out, it just, it still, it was just, it was one of those teams where you never believed they were going to lose until the last out was made. And, um, I was I didn't even get to see it because mom and dad made me go to bed that night and I remember mom waking me up the next morning saying that Tino and Jeter hit the big home runs and the Yankees won and just me like shooting out of bed so excited but at the same time so mad because they made me miss it and I made and because of I that up. Yeah, you stayed up. You were a little older than me. You had a later curfew, I guess. But uh, actually, actually, mom fell asleep in like the seventh inning, and uh, so yeah, I just I stayed up the whole end. <laughs> well, I made them. I made them let me stay up for game five because I had missed that, and luckily that happened, or else I would have missed another classic moment. So at least I got to see the Brochers home run. But I yeah, just I mean. Jeter walk off home run in the in the World Series for me it it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, and just you know you, you said like we were used to it, but I think you had kind of had the sense that with the way that the series had started, that that team was was fighting to stay alive. And and it was like they were trying to get shoved into the grave and they were saying no, like they, they still had some magic left and it was like the most incredible thing to kind of finish out that run and unbelievable all right so let's go to your top pick uh 96 world series game six we have three 96 world series games on here but i mean you know that was the start of the dynasty they took down a juggernaut in in the braves and and this was the game where it kind of all came together and and was kind of just the nail in the braves coffin and it all was with that third inning rally against greg maddox and um another instance where you're kind of just like following the cameras on the Fox broadcast and just, they're all shaking no matter what angle they show. I, I think I remember it best after the Jeter single. Um, and they're, and you know, Joe Buck saying, uh, guys, our booth is shaking. Well, the like camera was literally shaking when Jeter hit that single. Yeah. Um, I, I would have picked this first overall if I had the first overall pick. Uh, I respect your pick, but for me, this is the most special game I've ever. Uh, you know, I get choked up. Uh, honestly, I, I get choked up watching the the third inning and then watching pretty much the the bo- the top of the eighth and the top of the ninth, um, watching the reaction of the strikeouts and then when Girardi hits that triple, it's just it's crazy and. You know, being I, I turned eight years old or I turned nine years old during game three of the World Series and, you know, being able to watch this team really my first time following it and then they win the championship. I didn't understand the magnitude of it at the time, but I do now. And that's why I get more emotional now when I watch it. But um, that was it for me. Like this team became a huge part of my life because of that game. And, and that'll always mean a lot to me. And um you, you could tell how much it meant to the people that were at that point in their life already by watching the reactions in, in, in the stands. And that's just it, it. That World Series was so crazy and so intense. And um, just to win it like that with the tying run on, um, you know, it's just I, I could talk about that game forever. But but yeah, that that third that third inning off Maddox is nuts. And um, did you have anything else on game six, ninety six? I don't think I could have said it uh, any better way than that. I just uh, another thing that sticks out is just how, like I said, the Braves were, 
you know, they were on the cusp of a dynasty. Everyone thought that it was the Braves that was going to be going on this dominant run after they won the previous year. And, and after the Yankees took that three nothing lead they were held scoreless and and just the intensity and tension of the rest of that game where the Braves are trying to claw back just that that you know last breath of life and and you know in the back of your mind you you know who the Braves are and they easily could come back and win this game and take game seven with the pitching that they had but you know the Yankees bullpen like they had all series they they held them they held the Braves off and just what a intense finish that was in in the ninth inning Yep, and um, you know, there's a lot of games we could have that we didn't make this list, and and everybody knows what they are, and probably thinking why. But you know, we picked the ones that were the most important to us, and you had the first pick. And speaking of bullpens, uh, <laughs> game game seven of the 2003 ALCS is our number one uh, game of our of our living memory. And and why'd you go with that one? I just, you know. <laughs> All right, so we talk about 96 and how exciting it was just at the start of everything. We talk about 2001 where just the craziness of those couple nights where the Yankees were kind of giving us that last dose of magic of that dynasty. And then I think back to when, you know, we have these stupid, you know, suck on it quotes from Alex Cora and the whole New York, New York thing. But in 2003, the the height of that rivalry with the Red Sox was just... It was so much fun. You you could just run into anyone on the street, and if they were wearing Red so- a Red Sox hat or something, you can get into some playful trash talk. And just the characters on those teams, the Red Sox were just, you know, the Red Sox are still the Yankees' rivals, and I hate to see them win, but I don't hate guys like Mookie Betts. They seem like, you know, they seem like great guys, and they're amazing players. But, you know, the team with Ortiz and Pedro and Manny, and just they were so outgoing in their hatred of the Yankees just it just added to it so much and then you had the events of game three with Pedro and Zimmer and all that and then you just had this hard-fought seven game series and and then you had what I thought was the best rally in Yankee history in the eighth inning just because again there were just these other storylines playing out you know the Yankees biggest villain in Pedro stays out on the mound to try to hold off the Yankees and, and break this curse and the Yankees just put together a bunch of hits and, and then for a guy like Posada to tie it who had just this incredibly bad blood with Pedro and then you just ha- and then ugh, just I can go on forever Musina getting out of the jam three scoreless innings from Mariano and then of course the Boone home run and um I just remember going to school the next day feeling like I had won the American League pennant and I was just on top of the world and and uh, taunting all the Red Sox fans at, at school the next day. That was uh that was incredible. I would have I would have given anything to be at that game. Yeah, that um yeah, I, I mean I would have picked this game second, so I'm not trying to say it doesn't deserve to be at the top, obviously, but um yeah, the, the thing I love about it is you have the intensity with the Red Sox. It was more than just a baseball game because of that. But also you have like this game where not one guy dominates, but you get all these contributions. And it's like, I mean, that's really the last great October Bernie moment that we have. And and you have this incredible Mariano performance. And, and you know, like you said, Posada gets the big hit, Messina it's just it's an all-around team effort to take down Pedro and to take down uh, this Red Sox team that was trying to trying to do something that at that point no you you couldn't do that like the the curse was alive and well and um, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's just it's a great game in Yankee history. It's a great game in the history of the rivalry. And, um, yeah. Well, now awesome. I'm, after going through that list, I'm about ready to go watch YouTube highlights for the next three hours. Um, I don't know about <laughs> you. <laughs> I have to get up at 6, and it's 11.35. So Tino probably went yard right about, like, while we were talking about that game, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, as we record here on, on Halloween night, but that should about wrap it up. It was, as always, it's fun and always stirs up the emotions talking about some of those great memories and and can just only hope that in a few years we have some more with some, hopefully, another world championship. I and, mean, you know, it, it's, it sucks to see the Red Sox have a parade today and all that, but, you know, I'm still not forgetting the fact that the Yankees won 100 games this year. And honestly, if I don't... I don't feel like the Red Sox success kind of drives Cashman to make decisions he otherwise wouldn't have. But if I'm wrong and it's the Red Sox success that drives the Yankees to spend some money and, and have a really active offseason, then so be it. Right. I, I think maybe I don't. it shouldn't drive Cashman's decision making, but it should drive the Steinbrenners to open up their wallets for Cashman to do what he needs to do sort of thing. And, and I agree with that. And, you know, one thing that I, I kind of thought just comparing like we have the 20 we, we have the new the the baby bomber group and we have the old dynasty group and, and we didn't pick anything from like that middle uh that free agent group right the 09 team that did have the core four and i was kind of thinking about it the other day and it's kind of like I, I don't know the the 09 team to me and like that kind of thing it kind of felt like you had this girl that you went out with for a while and then you broke up and you got back together but it still <laughs> wasn't the same like, you know what I mean? Like, it just, all right. Like, I, think, it's, I just, I never got hooked on that team. Like, like I watched every game, but I never was that emotionally involved. Like, I, and I thought, okay, it's just because I'm getting older. But then this, you know, baby bomber squad comes around and I'm, I'm just as into it as I was in, in the late nineties. And that's awesome that that's still there. And, and that just shows like what a homegrown likable team with personality will do. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I also think a lot of that might have to do with the lack of, um, you know, exciting finishes in the 09 playoffs. For We talk about all these greatest teams of all time. It's easy to forget that the 09 team won 103 games and never faced elimination in the playoffs. I mean, they were a machine in 2009. Oh, they were, yeah, they were a great team. And, and the, you know, game two against the, the Twins was a great game. But, you know, they were also a bought team, you know. Yeah, well, I hope they're a semi-bought team next year, to be honest with you. But um, we'll see. Ho hopefully we have some of those rumors to talk about next week. But we will continue to find some uh, more guests for you. You know, Huge thanks to Jane Levy for taking a... You know, taking us through her new book, which is an awesome read. And uh, Sean, I'll, I'll see you next week. And um, and hey, congrats on getting married. I'll see you uh, for the you're, rehearsal you're... dinner on Friday. You're not going to see me next week. I'm going to be in London, That's right. Baby. So, yeah, I'm going to have to find a fill-in co-host. Hopefully it's not a Lou Gehrig, Wally Pipp situation. But, um, you know, I'll try to get someone slightly a slightly lesser version than you. Or I'll just go solo. Who knows? Oh, I'm sure you, you could bring in the other bomber brother, maybe, if you could figure out how to handle Skype. Or, or maybe <laughs> Dad will be around, whatever you want. All right. Well, congratulations and have fun. And we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks a lot. Yes, you will. All right. Bye, everybody.